Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with professor, scientist, and author, Dr. Robert Kirshner. He's made groundbreaking contributions in several areas of astronomy, including physics of exploding stars, the large-scale structure, of the cosmos and the expansion of the universe. Kirshner is the Klaus Research Professor of Science at Harvard University and Chief Program Officer for Science at the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, where he leads a team responsible for distributing more than $100 million per year for research and technology. The bulk of your career, you've been working with the expansion of the universe, and that's a concept that I think is difficult for most people to comprehend, but not just the expansion, but as I understand it, it's expanding at an accelerated rate beyond what most people had thought. Yeah, what yes. does all that mean to, <laughs> to us out here in Ohio? Well, we're trying to figure out where we are in the universe, in the world. And uh, one of the really interesting things that people have done, that astronomers have done, is to figure out where the Earth is with respect to the rest of the universe. And, you know, uh, for a long time people thought, well, maybe the uh, Earth is the center of the universe. Well, that idea kind of went out of fashion a few hundred years ago. Uh, uh, we're orbiting around the sun, that's for sure. Uh, but is the sun the center of things. Well, what astronomers have learned is no, it's pretty much a typical star. It's like a bunch of other stars. And it's in a much bigger system, a big flattened disk that makes up the Milky Way. And when we go out on a summer night in a dark place and you see the arch of the Milky Way across the sky, you're seeing the edge-on view of this flattened kind of pancake of stars that uh, we live in. And about 100 years ago, that's where the story ended. That was the, our address was, we're in the Milky Way, we're not in the middle of it, but we're orbiting but the we're sun. We're in there. Yeah, we're in there. <laughs> and what happened was really, really uh, uh, an eye-opening thing, which was to show that uh, there are little fuzzy things that uh, people called nebulae, Latin word for clouds, that were beginning to be detected with telescopes that could take pictures with photographic plates. Very hard to see with your eye, but you know if you add up the light for half an hour or an hour, you begin to get an image. Anyway, uh, there are nebulae out there, and 
some people thought, oh, those are just things that are part of the Milky Way. But it turned out that's not so, that the nebulae are, in fact, galaxies that are the equivalent of the Milky Way. They just look little because they're very far away. And the evidence for that came from uh, Henrietta Leavitt, who worked at the Harvard Observatory in you know, 1910 and 1920. Uh, and she was an extremely diligent, careful observer who uh, took stacks of photographic plates from the observing stations, which were in Peru and other places, right. uh, and then inspected them to see if there were stars that were getting brighter and dimmer, variable stars, we call them. And she found variable stars in, in a patch that uh, it, we now call the Small Magellanic Cloud. It's one of the satellites of our own Milky Way galaxy. The point is, all those stars are at the same distance, so the ones that appear bright really are bright. The ones that appear dim really are dim. And she showed that the ones that are brighter have longer vibration periods. So these are stars, they're big stars, and they're pulsing. And the bigger ones have a kind of lower note, like a big bell. Has like a, a low, bass. Yeah, has yeah, a lower right, note. Right. And they are, though, so you could tell from something that you could measure that doesn't depend on the distance, which is this period, how bright the star is. Well, the next step was that Edwin Hubble, working at the Mount Wilson Observatory near Pasadena, uh, used the world's biggest telescope at the time, uh, which had a 100-inch mirror, the 100-inch telescope wow. we call it. Now we call it the 2.5 meter, but it's the same telescope. <laughs> and it, uh, that was the world's leading uh, instrument, and he used it to look for variable stars in these nebulae. And he found the same kind of variables that Henrietta Leavitt had found, only they were 100 times fainter. If they're 100 fainter. times fainter, that means they're 10 times yeah. as far away. So instead of being in the Milky Way, these nebulae were separate systems as big as the Milky Way. So if you think about it a little bit, uh, if you think of the Milky Way as like a dinner plate, uh, the satellites, you know, your butter plate and all these other things here, right, right there. Right. But uh, something at the other end of the Thanksgiving table would be sort of the separation uh, between galaxies, between these things, which is, you know, like 10 times the size of the Milky Way. And it's a big number, too. It, the light from these nearby galaxies takes a million years to get here. So astronomers wow. use that as a distance measure. We talk about a light year. That's exactly. a measure of distance. It's a, you know how far light travels in a year. Uh, it's really a long way. Uh, we're used to shorter distances like a foot. A foot, as you know, is a unit of distance used in the United States and in Liberia. Uh, that's no, I did not know that. An international thing. Uh, it takes light a a billionth of a second, a nanosecond, to travel uh, that distance. And that means for all uh, practical purposes, when you look around, you know, you see things the way they are, even though the light took a few nanoseconds uh, sure. to get to you. But on the astronomical scale, the light's taking, for ordinary stars in the Milky Way, it might be hundreds of years. And for these galaxies, it's millions of years. Okay, so we live in a big universe, and it is full of these systems of stars. Well, that's one part. 
The other part is you can measure whether they're coming toward you or away from you. The light from a star has on it uh, certain wavelengths or colors where there's no light or less light. And uh, that's caused by the atoms in the atmosphere of the star. So the ordinary chemical elements like sodium or uh, hydrogen produce these absorption lines, we call them, certain places and the wavelength or color is fixed by the properties of atoms. Like the spectrum. Yeah, the spectrum. Right. So, you know, an astronomer will take the light and spread it out into a rainbow. Certain wavelength has certain color. Yeah, and then our job is to take something beautiful and turn it into a graph. So that's what right. we do, you know, with where it's bright and where it's dim. And it turns out that, first of all, that's how you know what the sun's made of. It's made of hydrogen and it has sodium. It has all, all the chemicals that we know on the earth are present in the other, in the stars. Uh, and what's more, uh, if the object is coming toward you, those wavelengths get shifted a little bit to the blue. They kind of get squished together. And if the object's going away from you, it gets stretched out toward the red, toward longer wavelengths. You hear that for sound all the time when a, uh, a car goes by at a high rate of speed, it goes, mm. you right. hear it higher pitch as it's approaching and then lower, lower pitch as it goes it... past. If you're sitting in the car, nothing changes. You know, right. the, right. that's the car. Right. So it's that change, mm. which we all know is the signal of something going past us. Well, the speed of sound is uh, a thousand times, uh, no, a million times uh, slower than the speed of light. So we don't see the cars changing color as they drive by. Well, they do have red tail lights, but that's for another reason. <laughs> the, uh, uh, but, so we're not used to this, but astronomers started to make those measurements for the galaxies for which Hubble had measured distances using Henrietta Leavitt's stars. And this was in the 1920s, a fellow named uh, Vesto Melvin Slifer, who worked at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, did this. And the Lowell is Percival Lowell, one of the Boston Lowells, who set up this observatory to study life on Mars because people were convinced that there were canals on Mars and civilization on Mars and agricultural seasons on Mars. People had convinced themselves of a lot of stuff. And uh, Lowell was quite an enthusiast of this. And wanted to, <laughs> so he wanted to know more. He right? wanted to know more. He wanted to be the first to go there, I guess. Anyway, uh, so he hired astronomers to work there. And in addition to studying Mars, I guess, you know, there are times a year when they didn't work on Mars, uh, Slipher measured the spectra of galaxies. And he found there are a few of them that are coming toward us, including uh, the one people might know, the Andromeda Galaxy, M31. Uh, that one's coming toward us, so check your homeowner's insurance because it's, <laughs> it's coming and it's not going to be pretty. But uh, that's quite a long time off in the future. But, uh, but most of the ones that Slipher measured, the galaxies that Slipher measured, are moving away from us. And... Uh, uh, the list he had may, had maybe 25 objects, of which three were coming and, you know, 22 going away. Okay. So that seemed odd. Maybe you would think, oh, we're at the center of things, and 
everybody's trying to get away from us. And they're piling up on the fringes. Something like that. Well, that would be as if you didn't learn the first lesson that, you know, we're, we're not, not at the, the center. center. <laughs> not at the center of the solar system. We're not at the center of the Milky Way. And it would be a kind of a like willful uh, inability to learn that uh, you'd think, well, it must mean we're at the center and everyone's going away from us. So uh, here's the story. Uh, that was in about 1925. And Hubble uh, had the distances and Slipher had published uh, the velocities. And it's amazing to me, they didn't kind of get together get, and, yeah. and calculate Why this, didn't Hubble right? make a graph <laughs> that showed velocity and against distance, distance, which, of course, he did in 1929, and which is the great thing. This is what we call the Hubble diagram, the relation between velocity and distance, which is that the more distant objects are moving away from us faster, is uh, Hubble's law, the rate at which it's doing it, we call Hubble's constant. I mean, it's all about Hubble, but it took him four years to decide to do that. I got interested in that, and I read his uh, book. You got interested in graduate school, right? Yeah. I, yeah. It, it, it was amazing that yeah. that, it, what, what, what sparked you to, to, what was the? Oh, well this, everybody thought this was the big problem. I okay. mean, once you were enmeshed in studying astronomy, uh, this seemed like the this great, was it. This seemed like the great thing, yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, people were working to measure the rate at which the universe is expanding, and then possibly, as I'll describe, the rate at which the expansion was slowing down. Everybody thought gravity would make it slow down. Uh, well, which I don't want to spoil things, but that's not the way it worked out. Uh, so here's the story. Uh, uh, Hubble uh, realized there was a relation between velocity and distance, and it's the same one you would get if you just stretched out the space between the galaxies. So if you imagine a piece of graph paper, well, it's sort of gone out of fashion, but anyway, yeah, piece of graph uh, paper. You know. I, I remember it. <laughs> and you know, if, if all the squares got bigger, all right. the intersections would move further, further away. Right. And what's more, if you looked at the nearby ones, the ones that were one unit away would now be two. But the one that was two units away in the same length of time would be four. So it was moving away Twice as double, fast. double speed. And three, it would be six. six. And so you'd have a Hubble's law. That is, the velocity proportional to the distance, stretching, just speak from the space, stretching out in all directions. And there's nothing preventing it from looking just the same way to anybody else on any other galaxy because their neighbors would be moving away from them. So we don't think we're in a special place. We think we're in a typical place. And the expansion is a property of the space, and the galaxies are getting carried along with the space, and that's why they're moving away from us. Okay, so that's the story. And of course, it's connected to a really deep physics story, which is, what is gravity? Well, we've known about gravity for the solar system since Newton's time, right? so that's the 1600s. And about 100 years ago, Albert Einstein invented a new theory of gravity, general relativity, uh, which is like Newton's theory when gravity is weak, but it is different when gravity is strong, and it's also different uh, over big lengths of time. So uh, 
Einstein was very quick to figure out that he could use his new model to build a picture of the whole universe, by which he meant the Milky Way. Because he was it, still stuck back in that story. The universe just being our galaxy. Yeah, and it's not expanding. Wow. Right after Einstein, and so he put in by hand a term, the cosmological term we call it, which was worked like kind of anti-gravity to make it so you could have a static universe because the stars in the Milky Way were not moving away from not each moving, other. It's right? the galaxies. <laughs> and he didn't know about that. The whole galaxy was moving. Yeah, and he didn't know about that. So uh, that was a sort of funny moment in, uh, in history where uh, Einstein was kind of off on the wrong track, really. And this cosmological constant, well, as soon as he heard about the expansion of the universe, he thought, wow, cosmological constant, terrible idea. Let's get rid of it. And he and the other people who understood general relativity and knew the astronomy, it's not a very big group, um, right. agreed that they just weren't going to talk about this anti-gravity thing, this cosmological term, this repulsive term. They were just going to leave it out. So that was sort of a an agreement in the 1930s that, okay, I invented that for the wrong reason. Let's just not talk about it. Doesn't exist. Put well, it over here on the yeah, side. Yeah, doesn't it? Just, not, they didn't <laughs> just actually, ignore that. <laughs> well, right. They didn't just carry it along and set it to zero, which, you know, that would have been a legitimate thing to do. They said, just leave it out. So the cosmological constant became a kind of poison ivy. You know, mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to touch that again. And that was the story in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s when I was learning uh, what the story was. Uh, Alan Sandage, who was the great astronomer of the late 20th century, worked at uh, the Carnegie Observatories and used the 200-inch telescope at Palomar. His program was to measure the Hubble constant, and the deceleration of the universe that you would get due to gravity. So if you don't have this cosmological term and you have gravity, it'll slow the universe down. And Einstein and his buddy De Sitter said, that's the model to study. Uh, Sandage, in a more practical way, said, here's what I'm going to measure to see how that's going. So I'm going to measure, he said the deceleration of the universe. Well, it turned out it was kind of hard. <laughs> and uh, he didn't quite get there. Uh, but uh, there's a way to get there, which is to use exploding stars. I talked about Henrietta Leavitt, and she was using a certain kind of star. Uh, turns out you need uh, something that's a lot brighter to be able to make really good measurements over big distances. Right. So Cepheids are good nearby. In fact, they're the best nearby. But if you want to measure, uh, say, halfway across the universe, you need something that's much brighter, even with modern equipment. And there is such a thing. There are exploding stars called supernovae. And it turns out there's a particular kind of supernova that I worked on that uh, is really good for this, provided you study it enough and you make a few corrections for this and for that. Uh, you can use these things as distance indicators. So then you measure the velocity and you measure the distance. At the time they're exploding. Yeah. 
Got it. Yeah, but that's the point. You have to really be on the ball because uh, they only stay bright for a month. So you have to discover them and study them right away. Uh, Hubble knew about the supernovae, and he said, oh, they're good distance indicators, but they don't help because they're so rare. Well, what he meant was they're so rare in the nearby universe that you could study in the 1920s. But, you know, we've come a long way. With us and our neighbors. Yeah. Our close-by neighbors. Yeah, and so it's true. You know, he's right. It's only every decade or two that you see one kind of really nearby. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. So uh, the interesting thing is that um, technology has changed. In the old days, people were taking photographs. You know, there's kind of a gelatin made from cow's feet, and you put silver salts in there, and light shines on it, and you take it in the dark room, and you do something, you turn it into silver metal. Well, that works, and uh, everybody knows about that, but now, uh, that's not how you take pictures, is it? You're not taking rolls of film (laughs) down to the drugstore to have them developed. Uh, Everybody has an electronic camera. And, of course, Einstein was uh, a visionary about how light interacts with matter. And he knew that when light interacts with matter, it can free up an electron, make an electric current. And really, that's the fundamental idea in the digital cameras that you have in your, in your phone. They're cheap. They're really good. And they're more sensitive to the light. You know that you can take pictures at a birthday party. Uh, and the candles are enough light right. to, you know, And without a flash. Without a flash. And why is that? It's because the um, detector is very efficient. It, most of the light that strikes it produces an electric signal that you can measure. Whereas uh, in the old days, the photographic stuff, uh, not even not 1%, so percent, not even 1% of the, of the light coming in had uh, the chemical effect that you uh, were trying to measure. So there's been a huge revolution in technology where we've switched from 
uh, photography, chemical stuff, to digital electronic cameras. And everybody has one. And uh, you kind of don't notice it, but it's really a lot better. Uh, yeah. and, and for astronomy, we had very early on uh, some of these devices. And you, the point is, of course, you can read them out with a computer. And there's a number that represents the brightness at each point. So that means you can start to do things with it, like addition. You can add up pictures to see fainter things. Or subtraction. You could look to see what changes. So that turned so out to— So you can convert the visual into mathematical That's right. And the computer formulas. can do that stuff. In fact, it's, that's the natural form of it. You know, it's a right. string of numbers, and you have to make it into a picture that you can see. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, that means now we have a whole way of taking pictures of the sky, which are digital images, strings of numbers. You can do stuff with them, add them, and subtract them. Well, what is a subtracted image? If you take a picture last night, and you take one tonight of the same place, and you subtract it, well— you'll get mostly zero because most things don't change. But suppose there was a supernova tonight and there wasn't one last night or a month ago. And when you do the subtraction, it'll stand out as the thing that changed. So the advent of these digital detectors and of computers has meant we can find these supernovae really, e well, not so easily, but we can find a lot of them and we, we can do this very well. And this is a a subject that in the last 20 years has gone from being kind of hard to really easy. And uh, we've got a lot of uh, supernovae to study. 20 years ago, we were pioneering this sort of work and uh, using the exploding stars to measure distances. Those are to galaxies whose velocities we can also measure. Okay. So we got velocities and distances. Now, how big are the distances? We think the universe has been expanding from the current rate, we can infer that the expansion has been going on about 14 billion years. So, you know, that's billion. Not, billion not a new thing. No, <laughs> don't get anxious. The universe is changing slowly. Nevertheless, these supernovae go off like, you know, snap, and uh, you can observe them, measure their brightness, infer their distance, measure the radial velocity, the, the expansion, and trace out by looking at supernovae nearby and far away how the expansion has been changing over time. Has it been constant? Has it been slowing down the way everybody Einstein told us it ought to be now? Right. Once he changed his mind. Uh, or something else. And so the funny thing is, the answer is something else instead of the objects appearing uh, a little brighter than you might expect because the universe hadn't expanded as much because it was slowing down. It's the other way around. So the light's coming to you from a distant uh, galaxy. On its way, the universe is expanding and it's bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's a little extra bigger because the expansion has been speeding up and that makes the supernova appear a little bit dimmer than it otherwise would. And all of that's measurable. And we measured all that. These are like 10% effects, so you got to do a good measurement. But uh, we learned how to do it, and then you need to do it enough times to convince yourself. And so by 1998, uh, we were pretty well convinced. 
that the universe was not slowing down. It's speeding up. And uh, I got to tell you, I, I had grown up thinking the cosmological constant is a terrible thing. Uh, and that, you know, I don't think I'm smarter than Einstein. And he was wrong about that. And I didn't want to be wrong about the same darn thing. Right. But, you know, uh, the students and postdocs that I was working with, their minds were a little cleaner. <laughs> and <laughs> Not they, as cluttered. Not uh, as cluttered with prejudice. Right. And they said, hey, look at the data. I said, well, yes, look at the data, but you know, in your heart, you know this is wrong. And uh, they said, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> so they won. Uh, you know, you had to look at the data and just see what was happening. And what was happening is this signature of a universe that was speeding up instead of slowing down. Grab, you know, it's like if you threw your keys up, you expect them to come back down. Suppose you threw your keys up and they took off, you know, yeah, right. to, to the stratosphere. That would be a surprise to you. And this, okay, it's a 10% effect, but it's, uh, it's, the, it's the sign of it that is so interesting. Instead of slowing down, the way everybody had said, uh, the universe appeared to be speeding up. So we did this. Another group uh, working at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab uh, did this. And in 1998, 1999, we told people, uh, everyone, uh, guess pay what? attention. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, some people didn't believe it right away. But there are many other lines of evidence now uh, about looking at the Big Bang itself, the glow from the Big right. Bang, and the way galaxies are clustered. There are other ways to get at the question of whether how much matter is there. So now the picture is we live in a universe that is uh, a little pinch of the atoms you know, the things from the periodic table, stuff that they have in chemistry classes. And then there's a lot of dark matter that is that's gravitational but doesn't show up, which I didn't describe, but right. it's, that's another part of the story. And then Two-thirds of the universe has to be in the form of this stuff we call the dark energy, which is could be the cosmological constant, making the universe swell up, rush apart, expand, accelerate. Uh, that's a pretty weird story because what we see, the stars that we see, right. the galaxies that we see, are just a very tiny fraction of the whole story, that the things that are invisible are the things that are controlling how the stars move and how galaxies form and all that stuff, both the dark matter, which is the gravitational stuff, and the dark energy, which is the thing making it speed up. So this is a really strange picture for so the universe. So the, the dark energy yeah. is, is still pretty much a mystery, is it not? Yes. Even if you say the cosmological constant, uh, we still don't know really what that is. And, uh, uh, you know, in modern physics, uh, empty space has properties. Uh, if you look at a small enough piece of the vacuum, the quantum picture is that you're kind of uncertain about what the energy is, and it could be that particles and their antiparticles are produced and then very quickly destroyed uh, uh, all the time. 
And so in that picture, a quantum picture of the universe, of the vacuum, um, the universe is the vacuum, empty space, has properties. And that, you know, particles and antiparticles are being produced and destroyed. And the observations of how particles behave agree with that picture and not with the picture where the uh, vacuum has no properties. So, so everything's changing, even, even the space, even the dark space. Yes. And uh, the interesting thing is, though, for electromagnetism or for the strong nuclear force or the weak force, all of this stuff works great. Okay, and you can do that computation, and it helps you understand how the particles work. It's just great. For gravity, not so good. Here's the story. Uh, if you ask, well, gravity is much weaker than all those other forces. Right. You know that. You okay. can pick a, a little tiny magnet in your hand, and you can pick up a nail. The entire Earth is pulling down on the nail, and the magnet <laughs> is winning. Okay? Right. What does that tell you? Magnetism, very strong. strong. Gravity, Gravity, very weak. Not so much. Very weak. So gravity is very weak, and what that means is that the length that's appropriate to think about for these quantum effects to show up is very small. And if you do that arithmetic in the same way you might do it for uh, electromagnetism or the nuclear forces that we really do understand, Right. you get an energy associated with the vacuum, which is bigger than the energy that we measure from the astronomical phenomenon, not by 10 and not by 100, but by 10 to the 100 powers. Wow. So that's really bad. That wow. Is, that's a Google. That's the, uh, <laughs> yeah. That is the worst quantitative disagreement in science, I would say. Well, anyway, it's pretty bad. So uh, that's the kind of uh, stuffy way of say, you know, not good quantitative agreement. That means wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what I concluded. Yeah, you know, like if on your exam, the professor writes, there is not good quantitative agreement between your answer <laughs> and the correct answer. Well, it's a, it's a kind of polite way of saying we really don't know. And uh, so we think there is dark, we know there is a repulsive, there is acceleration. We attribute it to this uh, dark energy. It could be the cosmological constant. But even if you say all those things, and even if you say them in the authoritative voice that I use in the front of a classroom or that they use in the planetarium, right? Right. Oh, The universe is dominated by (laughs) dark energy. (laughs) No, they say that stuff. But what do you really mean by it is a really interesting question. So I would say that's a mystery at the heart of physics. It's that we don't understand quantum properties of gravity. Well, that's not news. That's what Einstein was trying to work on the last 40 years of his life was some kind of unified theory where all the forces of nature would kind of work together. And it's where people are thinking String theory, which is a very interesting mathematical uh, construct, uh, might help us because in string theory, it looks like you can treat gravity the same way you treat the other forces. All of that's true without really being an explanation for the simple question you asked, you know, what is it? Uh, And if you Google it uh, in the old days, you used to get 
uh, a picture of dark energy plant food, <laughs> which was a concoction that you would use to grow marijuana in your closet. And it said, uh, the advertising said, uh, this has a distinct odor. And, uh, yeah. you know, as I said, it was like poison ivy before. Now it has yeah. a distinct odor. <laughs> so uh, that's sort of where we are. The question is now, is the dark energy constant or does it change over time? A real cosmological constant would just be constant. Boring. But, you know, you could calculate what it would do. Right. If it changes over time, uh-oh, all bets are off. You have to make these measurements at many different distances. And because of multiple variables. Yeah, you got more variables. You need better precision. You have to make each measurement better. So I'm working on that. Uh, I'm using the Hubble Space Telescope, named after Edwin Hubble. Right. And I'm trying to measure supernovae, same old thing, only now the wrinkle is, instead of measuring the visible light, we measure the infrared light. So you know that there's light that you don't see in the ultraviolet, that sort of black light make things right. glow, and there's infrared light that you know can heat you up yep. uh, even if you don't see it very well. Um, and it turns out that the supernovae are uh, easier to work with in the infrared, and they're uh, there's a bad thing between you and those supernovae, which is dust. It's bad in the household. It's bad in the universe. And it makes things look dimmer than they otherwise would be. And then if you don't know about that, you think they're farther away than they really are. And you make uh, a mistake it, in this whole it, exercise. But it alters the calculation. It does. And it alters it in one way and not the other. It makes can only make them look dimmer and farther, farther away. away and well, that's bad. Errors that go both ways, you could average out. But anyway, so the point is to measure in the infrared, and that's what we're trying to do with the Hubble Space Telescope and measurements on the ground. I know that you're working on this, and you're also working with the fa foundation. One last question quickly, and that that is you, you seem to have a mission also to explain this to, to lay people. Uh, you, you published a book that was sort of for a, a general audience, yeah. The Extravagant Universe, Exploding Stars, Dark Energy, and the Accelerating Cosmos back in uh, 2002. And it's still I, in print. <laughs> I, I noticed that. But, but is that part of your mission as a scientist as well? I think uh, science is really uh, a human enterprise. And uh, people, we are scientists are supported by society. People build these fantastic instruments for us, but not really for us. It's really for everyone. It's for humanity to understand these really simple questions. Where are we? <laughs> Where are we going? Uh, what time is it? Yeah. <laughs> <You> <laughs> and know, who, who might run into us? That's of right. Years that's right. So, and I think, uh, uh, you know, often people talk about science for more practical things, uh, developing technology and how it improves the economy. That's true. Uh, science is very important to the defense industries, and it's a dangerous world, and you wouldn't want to be behind on that. If you talk to congressmen, they're mostly old guys, so they're really interested in medicine. And uh, science, of course, has a tremendous amount to offer to relieve human suffering. That's completely true. But I think if we were rich and safe and immortal, which would be the 
outcome of all that. That would not be the ideal thing because we'd be bored. And humans are, really are curious. People want to know. Where are we? What, what's going on here? And the astronomers uh, at one end and particle physics at the other end and biologists in between are really doing this for everybody and not just as a practical matter, but also uh, for the joy of finding out how the world works. And every time it seems that you turn over one of those cosmological rocks, there's another question that you have to dig deeper and, and go further. Yeah. And, and so it's a never-ending quest for knowledge. It's the embodiment of that. It's been that. And the thing that has changed how we think about it is the technology that we went from those photographic plates that were very inefficient to electronic cameras. And, uh, you know, I'm at the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Gordon Moore was one of the founders of Intel, and he wrote this little paper about Moore's Law, how the uh, number of transistors on a chip was growing, but it was doubling every two years or so. And that happened for 50 years. Wow. It doubled. Wow. You know, wow. that's 25 doublings. That's a yeah. lot. And uh, uh, that change in technology which has produced uh, things like uh, the computer, the supercomputer sure. you can hold in your hand, sure. uh, you know, your cell phone, and uh, has also produced fabulous tools for scientific investigation. And so I think, you know, on the one hand, uh, what we're doing is not going to make a difference to your daily life, but it might make a difference to your big picture in the world. I would say the picture of whether the Earth was at the center of the solar system and changing that to one where we're not, uh, that was a big change in how people thought, and I think it, that percolated into other parts of society. Dr. Kirshner, thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Today we've been talking with professor and author Robert Kirshner, the author of The Extravagant Universe, Exploding Stars, Dark Energy, and the Accelerating Cosmos. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.